0: Okay, it's 2.30, so thank you all for bravely coming back. Uh, One of the things, there there are things I dislike about electronic media, but one of the things I like is that if we do make a mistake, then we can correct it really quickly, as opposed to having to wait two weeks until the next issue to actually put in a correction. And I also like, actually, this process of having... Three lectures back to back with only a half hour in between because when I realize that I omitted something I can quickly correct it as opposed to my practice at the University of Texas where I would walk away from the lecture and realize ah I did not explain this clearly or I left this out and then you have to wait you know on a Monday Wednesday Friday hour at a time you have to wait a couple of days in order to, uh, to fix it. So three things I've realized during, during our half hour off with the, with the help of a, of a couple of you. Uh, number one, yeah, much to my horror I did not include this useful acronym, uh, THA, um, thinking, hunting, analyzing, writing, in reforming journalism. I went and looked in my computer because I did not remember whether I had or not. And I think it is a very useful thing to keep in mind. Before you start writing, you know, think it through, uh, and then have a thesis. Hunt for specific, uh, specific examples that show your thesis. If you don't find the examples. Then change the thesis if you find counterexamples. Change the thesis and so forth. Thinking, hunting, analyzing—that is seeing what you have—and only then writing. And then writing, of course, you could add another. I suppose I add an R at the end because uh, 90% of writing is rewriting, which is which is something I did not learn. I was lazy enough, so I just wanted to be able to write and go for that. And I didn't really learn until uh, when I was 28 and, and worked then for several years as a as a speechwriter. For the uh, for the executives of the DuPont Company in Wilmington, Delaware, because uh, that was it, it's a miserable experience in lots of ways, but it really teaches you about rewriting. Because every speech from the chairman would have to go through about 18 drafts or so, and uh, because the uh, the chief the chief economic person, the chief legal person, the vice president of Textile Fibers, and so forth, they all had to approve certain things, and then uh, the the speaker himself would get about draft number 12. And then he'd say, oh, let's roll up our sleeves and go to work on this. So this is, actually, this is actually very useful. And the hardest thing, I suspect, I mean, for those of you who are smart and decent writers, is to learn about rewriting. Because you may have gotten by and gotten decent grades by just doing a little bit of rewriting. But, but no, really, I've, for, I've, heard, I've had so many good writers tell me this, and this is my own experience, 90% of writing is rewriting. You just got to keep working at it and working at it, and um, you know, thinking, hunting, analyzing, writing is a good process to follow. Second thing, what I didn't explain, what confused the person, I started to mention that I am a, a 20th century Red Sox fan, in terms of uh, expecting uh, defeat, basically. And so this is a fan calling down the drain in the second inning. Uh, <laughs> we've had um, we've had more than 30 interns at this point living with us in our home for for a couple of months. And by God's kind providence, in 2018, when the Red Sox had one of the greatest records ever and won the World Series, the intern who was with us was a strong Red Sox fan. And so we were able to watch lots of games. And she is a 21st century Red Sox fan, which means a totally different sense of things because the Red Sox in the 21st century, after being shut out ever since 1918, Uh, They never won a World Series in all those years, the rest of the century. In the 21st century, they've won the World Series four times. So as a 20th century Red Sox fan, I have a certain down-the-drain emphasis myself, 21st century Red Sox fan, she expected them to win, and she was very gratified when indeed they did. Totally different psychology depending on experience. Now what that goes with how people read the Bible, I'll let you figure out for yourselves, but sometimes our personal experience may very much influence the way we interpret certain things. And, you know, to just think as a 20th century Red Sox fan or to just think as a 21st century Red Sox fan, both of them were incomplete. You have to be able to look at both uh, Psalms of Blessing and imprecatory uh, passages <laughs> to, to be a baseball fan in Boston. Um, the third thing, and here's one thing I omitted, I had said I would give an example of the Class 2, and I gave the example of the Class 2+, plus, namely abortion, but I didn't give a real example of the Class 2. And so... Um, Deuteronomy six seven, which talks about uh, the importance of educating your children. You know, teach your children when you sit in the house, when you walk, by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Education and Christian education is an example of the class too. Um, does that verse and other things mean that a parent should never send children to a public school? That it's a sin to do that? I think that would be overusing the Bible to state that. Um, to to just let have a child go to a public school and and Don't try to find ways to counter the propaganda and the socialization. I mean that's a big problem. Uh, there are certainly problems when first graders are told that, that boys might be girls and girls might be boys. That's a little confusing. But nevertheless, I wouldn't I would not say, and we maybe we can I would not say it's a sin to send a child to a public school. I would advise against it in most circumstances. I certainly think Christian schools and home schools are the way to go, and in fact, that's, that's what we did just about all the time with our own children. But nevertheless, I think, I think an example of overusing the Bible would be to say that it's sinful to ever send a child to a public school. And so that's an example of a class two rapids where it is not an utter command to, let's say, do not send your child to a public school, but I think it's strongly urged, especially given the nature of the way education is going in this country. So that would be a class two as opposed to a class one, which is a very straightforward command. Class two, you have to take a step to, to get to that conclusion. And we can talk about that a little more as we go on. But uh, yeah, here's my opportunity then to to make corrections, and I'll probably do that next time too. But now let's move to journalism history and what it shows us about the way God providentially has, uh, has worked. Uh, this goes back now to the 17th century. Um, this is a uh, you know the the in a way this thing with the with uh, the radiating um, from from the, the sun the center of things um, Louis the Fourteenth of course was called the, was called the Sun King in Versailles in France and the idea was that and in whatever occupation you were you were supposed to indicate your loyalty to the king uh, basically all rights proceeded uh, from the king in uh, this idea of, of, of the divinely installed uh, king, not just providentially, but providentially for good. Sometimes kings or presidents may be, may be within God's providence for, for bad. Uh, but the idea was that the, the government is really the center of things, the king is really the center of things, everything radiates from that. Uh, here's Louis the XIV in, in The Flesh, didn't seem that impressive a character, but nevertheless, t- tastes change at times, clothing changes, <laughs> hairstyles change, wigs change. Anyway, um, here in Britain, it was a little different. This is a very friendly <laughs> monarch, uh, but still with radiating lines. The king was still the center of things. Here's a picture of George II, slightly amused um, <laughs> during the time he was, he was king. But this meant that the editor's job, I mean, both in England and in the colonies, was to print the official story. This is what I mentioned in my quick overview starting out. Basically, public relations for government. The editor's job was to make the king look good, make the royal governor look good. Um, that, was his, that was his function. That was his calling. And yeah, if, you, if, there, if there is something that, that factually counters that, you're not supposed to mention it. Here's New York Governor William Cosby uh, in the 1730s, and he demanded the official story and wanted to make sure that all printers and editors published public relations for him or propaganda for him. New York Weekly Journal, uh, newspaper. This is this is one of the front pages from 1733, containing the 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 uh, advices foreign and domestic, uh, so yeah, both local and, and national international news, um, all sorts of things. This is from February 25th, 1733, and here was the editor, a fellow named John Peter Singer, who was a Christian, actually a Christian Reformed Church at a time when the Christian Reformed Church was actually churchly. Can I say that? Um, and uh, he played the organ uh, and. Uh, and they sang, uh, even though there were a possibility. Well, never mind. A different job description. John Petersenger as a Christian. saw that his that his calling at times was to report the corruption story, uh, namely, if the if the world governor was doing bad things, you got to report him. Um, this was this was a change, and certainly British law did not allow that. The law at that point concerning libel was actually a quick summary: the greater the truth, the greater the libel. If you said, if, if, uh, if John Peter Inger said that Governor William Cosby was a, was a man from Mars, that was untrue, but no one likely would believe it. And so even though you were, if you, th- if you think of Martians as inferior, if you are libeling William Cosby, no big deal. If however you say that, that he's involved in adultery, or as was actually the case, if he's stealing land, if he's stealing cattle, if he's, if he's doing nefarious things, then if it's true, it's worse, because people would be more likely to believe it. And again, the job of the editor was to make the royal governor look good. Uh, or to put it another way, uh, the editor's job is to help us look in the mirror and see ourselves as sinners. Uh, that was important. And, and, and ourselves includes, sinners includes even the royal governor. So, editor's job uh, in, in uh, John Peters Engler's understanding, truth-telling, not public relations, and this is sort of the beginning of the corruption story in America, as opposed to the official story, the corruption story, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you have two views in conflict. Here's the government-centric official story, once again, where everything radiates from the government. And here's the opposing view, that God is overall, our activities are under biblical authority. I don't know if you can see these lines, but if you're familiar with Van Til or others, I mean, the sphere sovereignty in a way. You know, uh, here's God, here's church, family, economy, school, state. Uh, comes, it comes from God and the government, the state also uh, it 's not above these uh, it 's equal to these. It has certain, certain authorities like a taxing authority, but uh, the press also has an independent authority. Uh, schools have an independent authority in England at the time, uh, to get a degree from Oxford or Cambridge, essentially the, the king or actually one of his ministers or, or officials had to sign off on it you know so and so is a loyal is a loyal person. He doesn't have heretical ideas, uh, and, that, and that was to get, a, to get a degree because the idea was everything, all education rights, everything else radiates out from the, uh, the king or the royal governor or the central government, as opposed to this idea where they all have God-given functions, uh, and they may be in conflict at times, and that requires some resolution, but nevertheless, it's not that, that government or the king lords over everyone else. Two opposing views. Uh, Patrick Henry became, became famous. Uh, because of uh, he would he would point out in his, in his speaking or speechifying, as I sometimes might say, uh, corruption in the British and the colonial government. Uh, he wasn't supposed to do that either. The members of the of, uh, 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 colonial assemblies and so forth were all supposed to be doing public relations for the uh, for the king. And Patrick Henry, of course, is famous for for orating, not writing. Give me liberty, or give me death. Um, my wife decided to stay in the hotel because we have a dog who, if we're away from the dog for six hours during the day, might get a little obstreperous. Um, and, uh, uh, but nevertheless, I can bring her in here by saying she is famous for many things that she rightly is. We've been married for 45 years. But her most famous single thing is she was a, a Jeopardy triple stumper. Uh, if you've ever watched Jeopardy, uh, you know, there, none, none of the people were able to guess. The category was Daughters of the American Revolution, this is in 2006. For $800, Susan Olasky has written a kid series about the adventures of Annie, daughter of this fiery Virginia orator. And no one, none of the three contestants, guessed Patrick Henry. Um, so if any of you are ever on Jeopardy, and they, ask this and they re- retread the question, then you'll know. But yeah, she was a triple stumper. This is the cover of one of her novels for children. Uh, uh, Annie Henry, Adventures in the American Revolution, and so forth. This one is actually, this is from from uh, uh, Crossway, four, four books in one. There were four small books, and they were all combined in one book, which I highly recommend to you all, especially if you have daughters. Um, but anyway, yeah, the strange thing is, I mean, you know, girls, girls will read books about both boys and girls. Boys won't read books about girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how old-fashioned, we might say, how, how politically incorrect, nevertheless. Uh, but, uh, but Susan did a wonderful job writing those. Um, columnist Samuel Adams, I mean, he's known, of course, for Boston Tea Party and other things. Uh, but he was—he was a columnist. He was—he was also, by the way, uh, I should mention—he uh, failed as a as a, as a brewmaster. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that's why he's famous now. But uh, anyway, he was a really good columnist. Um, so Susan is a little bit like Samuel Adams' wife uh, in that uh, uh, apparently Samuel Adams would do some of his writing at night, and and uh, his wife would wake up and hear. Uh, and, and he's not in bed next to her and so she gets a little worried and then she hears the sort of pen or the quill sort of scratching away and she goes right back to sleep happy. All's right with the world. Sam is writing. Um, so um, anyway, the, uh, um, yeah, my wife sometimes hears me tapping away on the computer uh, in the middle of the night. So anyway, um, yeah, here's is, this is an example of, uh, of, a, of a newspaper uh, uh, applying Patrick Henry's liberty or death you see, this is the Pennsylvania Journal and Weekly Advertiser, and when the British were promulgating edicts, uh, they put a uh, sort of scrawling crossbones and set it up like a uh, like a, a, a death notice. Essentially, this was the death of liberty here. And uh, the founders of the, the the writers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution they opposed some kings. They opposed that idea of everything radiating from the king. And in fact, we have a brief civics lesson here in passing, but this was really important for the newspapers of the time. Since we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, we need a separation of powers to prevent dictatorships. So, you know, you see here, this is our this is our classic. Um, uh, the in the um, in the British government at that time, there's a king, there's the House of Lords, and then there's the uh, the Commons uh, representing different constituencies. The reason we have our, our system in the United States is because the founders like that, and they wanted it to be for real, but not with a king who would live for his whole life. This is a, the executive. This is a, an elected president, only for four years. Uh, um, this is the, uh, the Senate. This may, it may seem like a joke to say it now, but the Senate, in a sense, was the, was the aristocracy. These were supposed to be the wisest people, the, uh, the, the, the people who would be, uh, uh, well, the Commons here is the House of Representatives, and the idea was the Senate, in a sense, was a, was a saucer. Uh, the, the House of Representatives is the cup. Uh, if, you, if it overflowed, then it would spill onto the saucer, but it would not, it would not create a mess all over. Um, so they all had their different functions, and there was, this is where you, have, you may remember from high school or whatever, you know, checks and balances, separation of powers. This was all founded on the idea of essentially original sin and making sure that power wasn't concentrated on any particular person. And then there's more, more checks and balances if you think of that sort of uh, triangle, you throw a rope around the whole thing, and that's the Supreme Court, uh, which is supposed to, in case the president and the, the executive and the legislature are all in cahoots, the Supreme Court's going to stop it. Uh, and then you throw another rope around the whole thing. I can't really, I was going to draw this, but I just use this instead. Uh, the state legislatures were supposed to be a check on the, on the middle government. And then there was one more rope around the whole thing. Since I'm giving a lecture about journalism, can you guess what it is? Well, that's the press. The press was supposed to be the final bulwark of liberty. If everything else went, went uh, was in trouble, um, then the press would still sound the clarion and, and, uh, and save the day. And that's why we have the First Amendment uh, for a lot of things. Uh, uh, yeah, I should say the churches also were, in a sense, a check and balance in the system too. But, but they particularly talked about the, the role of a free press. In doing that, and that's because the corruption story had caught on from John, Pe- from John Peter Jenger in 1735. I should finish the story. Uh, William Cosby threw him in jail, um, and uh, he was in prison for several months. His wife ran the newspaper Anna Zenger, and actually, i got to say, she probably did a better job than he did. Uh, but he was in prison, and then there was a jury, and it was the first runaway jury in American history. It's a term lawyers use when the jury actually goes against the law because God's law is higher and the jury considered that to be wrong. The jury in Zenger's case, um, yes, Zenger had published it. He had published stuff that was derogatory, truthful, but derogatory about Governor William Cosby. And thus under British law, he was guilty. Uh, The jury contemplated it and thought, well, no, there's a higher law here. He's telling the truth. He should not be guilty. And so the jury foreman says, when asked, the jury foreman says, not guilty. And the, uh, the chief justice there who was presiding on the court repeatedly asked the foreman, well, why, how could you find him not guilty? It is so evident he's acknowledged that he printed it, he published it, he's guilty. And the foreman just kept repeating not guilty, not guilty, not guilty because he was he was worried for good reason that if he actually started explaining the thought process, namely they sided with this guy, then he and perhaps the whole jury would be thrown to jail also. But because of the political situation at that time, Cosby had not wanted a rebellion breaking out and so John Peter's went free. And after that, there were no cases uh, in the colonies, uh, successful cases brought for, for libeling, for, for criticizing a royal governor. And that's really what made the American Revolution. Uh, in the 1760s, the press was very active in Boston and other places, just telling the truth, pointing out what was wrong about this. And um, the, the, uh, at that point, the precedent, in a sense, was established that this was a legitimate thing to do, regardless of what British law stated. And so then you come to... Moving on here to, uh, here's a the, in, the, in the 19th century, in, in, in 1830, according to one estimate, uh, three fourths of all the newspapers and the magazines in the United States were explicitly Christian. And one example, Boston Recorder, which exposed corruption. Um, I've, I really enjoyed once at the University of Texas, um, for some reason, which I've never quite been able to figure out, there was a complete run of the Boston Recorder, sort of kept in the basement of one of the libraries. And I found out about this, and really had a, a, a great afternoon just reading through the whole the whole series. Uh, newspapers, by the way, before the Civil War were printed on on paper with a, with better rag rag content rather than pulp, and so you can actually read a newspaper, say from 1816, and just turn the pages, and it won't crumble in your hands the way a newspaper from say the 1880s would. Um, so it was really fun reading the Boston Recorder. Here's the uh, the editor, uh, Nathaniel Willis, and I mentioned Willis prizes here. I'm just doing it because. Uh, my wife and I have, uh, um, God has blessed us economically to the point we'll be able to set up a small foundation called Zenger House uh, after John Peter Zenger. And next year we're going to start awarding Willis Prizes for for articles that show biblical objectivity. So if any of you uh, see such a, such a thing, uh, just uh, drop me an email. I could use some scouts out there. Um, because I think this, uh, uh, and by the way, this is the successor, in a way, to the Amy, the Amy Foundation, the Amy Writing Awards, which were given for about 30 years up until 2015. And for the, for the last three years, I basically administered it at the request of the foundation. And um, uh, then they decided to stop it, among other things, because I said, hey, we've got a problem here. Um, actually, I've got two problems. I'll just, I'll just mention this. Uh, and I'd be interested to just... Perhaps in a discussion later, or something what you think about it, one problem was that to be eligible for the Emmy Award, you had to quote a bible verse and i 'm all in favor of quoting Bible verses, but reading the the submissions i was often I was often seeing that a bible verse was was uh, just stuck in there because you know you could possibly win ten thousand uh, dollars their first prize, or they had even an honorable mention for a thousand dollars and uh, you saw Bible verses that really weren 't Weren't appropriate, and and I just thought, hey, we like to see Bible verses, but that should not be a, uh, a requirement. Um, the other thing was, uh, just an aside here, that there was there was blind judging, and so you saw an article, but you didn't know who this came from, and that that sometimes led to some difficult experiences because you, you know, I I didn't really want to be giving awards to people who were who were who were heretics, let's say, um, and so. Uh, yeah, we are we are going to have in our in our first Willis prizes since the Amy award stopped in 2015, uh, we are we are going to uh, allow submissions, or, or people our scouts finding anything from 2016 up to the end of this year, and we'll give out these awards in uh, in uh, 2022 the first time, um, and yeah, our our foundation is not very big, so our first prize is just five thousand dollars, but then we have other prizes, so if you see something that that is a biblically objective story. That is, um, you know, based on a biblical understanding of, of a particular situation. It involves street level reporting, uh, not just an opinion piece, not just a devotional piece, but something that involves reporting. But it's you can you can see from the writing that the that the person has uh, has uh, an understanding based on the Bible. Then I'm very interested in finding out about it, and that actually will. You know, I I, I want to talk with the people and find out where they're coming from and learn about them. Probably interview some of them for World and just learn more about uh, about what they're doing and how they're doing um, how they're doing it. So anyway, um, yeah. Again, uh, if you if you see a good example, just just uh, drop me a line. Okay, what happens? Uh, you get into the 19th century and people ask, well, what if all have nuts sinned and fall short of the glory of God? What if uh, you know, uh, uh, Rousseau talked in the 18th century about noble savages. Um, this, is, this is part of a, uh, of, a, of a pretty neat painting by Benjamin West. But, um, yeah, what if, what if, in fact, uh, uh, the problem is not within ourselves? You know, um, uh, Chesterton's favorite, famous response, which I think there's some controversy about where they actually said it, but apparently the, the editor of the London Times at one point uh, asked, what's the problem in the world? And Chesterton responds, uh, dear sir, uh, I am. Uh, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, that's basically the corruption story. That changed in the 19th century for a whole lot of reasons. And those of you who have studied uh, uh, church history, like Dr. Strange and others, I mean, this this will probably resonate with you. A lot of things going on, but essentially the idea that all of sinned uh, uh, tended to disappear. Uh, and, uh, well, maybe some have sinned, but there are others who are, who are pure, of heart and wonderful, and the problem is oppression. Uh, Horace Greeley became famous uh, as the editor of the New York Tribune from 1841 through 1872. Uh, here's here's Horace Greeley, and I'll just show you, uh, since it's unlikely that any of you will actually be there, in the uh, in the bathroom uh, uh, on on the main level of our of our house. I don't know if you can see this, but. Uh, you probably can't, but this is this is the heading. This was in uh, Puck, a sort of uh, uh, funny newspaper. This is from the uh, uh, about 1880, uh, and here you have uh, Henry the Eighth. You have Richard the Third. You have Judas here somewhere. You have various scoundrels, and then you have New York famous New York editors <coughs> delivering papers. There's Joseph Pulitzer. Um, uh, here's Charles Dana. Uh, here's James Gordon Bennett. And here, who look, looking very much like him, is James Gordon Bennett, Jr. And there are others. And so these are all very scoundrels. And the caption is, where they are most appreciated, the arrival of certain New York morning papers in the infernal regions. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful drawing. And uh, anyway, it's in our bathroom. Um, and, uh, anyway, um, and then I want to tell you... Uh, uh, this is our this is our dog. Uh, he, was, he was in the hotel right now, named Greeley, um, and uh, um, yeah, uh, we don't call him Horace, uh, just just Greeley. Um, anyway, so here's the question, um, and it's not that it's not that America became socialist in the 19th century. It certainly didn't, but there were Marxist ideas that, that became quite common in the 1880s, and the 1890s, and then into the 20th century. What if we could all be noble? Except for capitalist oppression. Um, what if we could all be supermen? Except for Christian oppression, you know. And this is, of course, you see the mustache. This is this is uh, Nietzsche uh, as as Superman. Um, you know, to look at a movie from a few years ago. Uh, you know, if you fight the oppressors, then our natural goodness can reappear, which is a theme of the of the hit movie Avatar. Um, you look at this politically, and again. Uh, I think actually I have mixed feelings about Franklin Roosevelt. Given the situation, the depression, he didn't do a he didn't do a bad job, um, but you know he became really the first highly popular oppression fighter for journalists in America, um, and you know the idea is a New Deal. Basically, the the reason we have inequality of in places just because that's the way that's the way the cards are shuffled. You should you should have a reshuffling, um, but uh, you know the the. These were hard times and, and uh, hard, hard decisions had to be made. But what happens basically is that journalists in the 1930s start melding the official story. Namely, we need, we need government to fight the oppressors. We need government as our, as our leader, our master, our God in some way with a new oppression story that these institutions, whether it's the church or business or this or this or this, uh, they're the ones that are causing the problems. It's external to us. It's oppressive as opposed to the basic problem, as Chesterton would say in the 20th century, well, I'm, I'm a sinner. I am. Uh, what's the problem? Me. Um, so you, you, you had then uh, an official story uh, melded with the oppression story. Namely, if you, if you did public relations for the government, um, that was actually a, a very good thing for your career. And you could you could uh, profit immensely through it, and that's become that became more and more the uh, the case among among journalists uh, in the 20th century. Uh, journalists could enjoy perks from officials, so you can you know you can you can fight oppression, and in a sense become become uh, very powerful and rich, perhaps doing it, um, which is which is a uh, you know a very a very comfortable position to be in. You can you can feel very virtuous. You can feel you're fighting for the for the little guy, but you're becoming a big guy yourself. And again, I don't I do not want to get political here. One of the things we emphasize at World, we want good reporters. I don't interrogate them as to whether they're conservative or moderate. I mean, I, we don't have anyone who's on the who's on the left because that just doesn't it's it's not what World is all about. But we have a mix of people. We have a spectrum of people. Um, so I don't want to get political. But I found it interesting that. Uh, that in a sense, when, when Barack Obama became president, this is, this is basically, he was an oppression fighting official and a lot of newspapers and magazines just just became public relations agencies for him. And I'll just give you an example here. This is Rolling Stone. When he becomes president, you know, A New Hope. And you know, you, you see the, uh, the light behind him. I mean, it's almost, uh, you know, this is, this is a saint. And then interestingly enough, here's, uh, here's the recent cover with Joe Biden. Okay, you know, you know, A, B, <laughs> very, very similar. And, and so there's a theology here. Um, you know, the out with the old God, in, in with the new, uh, essentially. So there's a problem. Um, and, you know, I would suggest an old idea, which is, which is theologically potent and, and also has, has certain ramifications when we look at our society. Don't give anyone too much power. Because all of sin falls short of the glory of God um, and uh, pray for pray for God's mercy um, this is actually by a Russian painter and uh, yeah I mean, it's kind of it's kind of interesting and um, and that leads me well first questions about about what I've just said I'm, you know, I'm running through this very quickly uh, questions comments thoughts yes sir
1: I have an uncle down in Birmingham who's very far, far, far left, and his idea of this of this new melding that you're talking about—not that he would view it that way at all—but he says that there has been no change in journalism that it's been actually just as uh, profitable and good as it's always ever been. Because he, he always quotes that um, something about like the 1800s, late 1800s, something about the New York Times saying only the news that's fit. To print or something like
0: that. All, all the all the news that's fit to print. Yeah. Yeah. It's, which it's, which sometimes is parodied as all the news that fits we print. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but but he, he he views that idea, and sometimes he'll kind of say it a bit a bit tongue in cheek. But he thinks of it as today. I mean, when when they have basically just slander stories, um, and like you're talking about, it's just it's becomes just entertainment almost, like fictional entertainment reading for not uh, not not your words, but but for. Their echo chamber, but yet he still sees that as as legitimate journalism, how, I mean, in this sort of view, how do you, how would you engage with people who, uh, they don't see it as anything but legitimate?
0: Yeah, well, um, first I would just engage with him on on historical fact. Uh, Let me tell you about the New York York Times and and that slogan. Um, The New York Times started out in 1851 as a Christian newspaper. Uh, Henry Raymond, who founded and was the editor, was, was very explicitly Christian. That's what he believed. He had, he had a whole series of debates. He, he had worked at one point for Horace Greeley, and he had a whole series of debates with, with Greeley, which went on issue after issue where, where they were debating basic theology as well as politics and other things. Um, so Raymond was a Christian. He died in 1869, but the people he had appointed stayed on. And in 1871, the New York Times did a journalistically wonderful thing they, they published a, uh, an article called The Evil of the Age, which referred to abortion. They sent a reporter named Augustus St. Clair undercover into abortion businesses in New York, which were big and, and, and highly important. Um, and uh, the reporter went, went, went with a young lady, and she pretended to be pregnant and so forth, and they asked the various abortions, what are you going to do? And they all said, and then he wrote this wonderful story, investigative story, called The Evil of the Age. So that was the New York Times. Now, as time went on, the, the Christian flavor of the New York Times late in the 19th century um, uh, disappeared or, or became slighter, but there was still the sense of we are going to be uh, maybe sensational stories and understated prose. And so the New York Times slogan at one point in the 1890s became, or in the 18, yeah, 1895 or so became, it does not soil the breakfast cloth. Because you had some newspapers put out by William Randolph Hearst at that point, that was full of, of, um, sensational nastiness, and murderers and all kinds of stuff, and so the New York Times slogan, which is "Do not soil the breakfast cloth," and then coming after that was the slogan. After a few years, all the news that's fit to print. And it was not related. It was not a political message. It was, it was an anti. Sort of atheistic sensationalism message, saying we're not just going to get hysterical, we're going to, we're going to have an understated prose. Uh, we're not going to be yelling. We're going to try to be calm. So that was the meaning. It was a, it was a social meeting and a cultural meeting rather than a political meeting. And yeah, if you compare the New York Times in the late 19th century with the New York Times now, they are very different in their theology and their politics and their sociology. So. You know, first, at, at, the, at the risk of, of, of boring him, I would just engage, what's, what's the historical fact here? Uh, if you're saying it's the same then, it's the same now, I mean, that's just not, not historically accurate. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, I would say, well, let's, let's go look at stories. Uh, let's, go, let's go, now coming to the present, um, let's look at the story, uh, how it's reported, who the protagonist, antagonist, mission, obstacle? How is the story put together? Who's the face? Let's let's go and analyze this and see what they're doing, and then compare it with other accounts, maybe other liberal accounts, maybe conservative accounts of the same situation, and and let's just see uh, what's accurate and what's not accurate. So I would try to come down the ladder of abstraction, try to give a give a brief history lesson, and then come down the ladder of abstraction. Let's look at particular stories, and compare and contrast what's going on. Okay. Yes, sir. Oh. Yeah. Um,
1: how would you say that journalism, based on the history of gave, interacts with international journalism? Uh, it seems kind of American centric. Did this influence <coughs> international journalism? Is a movement going on internationally at the same time?
0: I'm yeah. wondering what <coughs> connections are. There. Yeah, it is It is American centric. Um, and that's that's those are the, the, his, the history books I've written. I've looked a little bit at British journalism and French journalism, and it is different. There, you, American journalism was usually localistic. You had all these local newspapers all over the place. Um, in in Britain, the most influential papers came out of London, most part, and people all over the country would read it. Even, you know, the country wasn't that big. You you'd, you'd have carriages that would take newspapers, and the London Times was always influential. The Telegraph, others. Um, in in France things disseminate out of Paris so you had very early on you had ideological newspapers as a, so there there was the there was the polarization already which is why in you know probably in France why they had a series of revolutions you know 1789 1848 1870 uh, et cetera, etcetera etcetera because you had a lot a lot more polarization than you tend to have in the United States England was a little bit different uh, maybe because you know they their slogan is "Keep calm and carry on," so you didn't have as much of a of a radical impetus as in France. I mean, it's, you know, comparing you know John Locke versus Rousseau and uh, and so forth. Um, so different different countries, but you still tend to have national newspapers, whereas the United States was more was more local. Um, I've done some, and in fact, reforming journalism. Our our hope was really to be to be very helpful in China. Uh, we have our World Journalism Institute courses here. Uh, my wife and I taught a WGI course in Shanghai several years ago. Uh, the following year, we had, uh, we had two of our reporters who are, who are Asian American teach one in Hong Kong. Uh, we really hoped to do a lot more, but we did not count on, on, uh, on President Xi shutting everything down. Um, yeah, right, right now, if we were to go and do another one, we would be, we would be putting a target on the back of, of every single person who came. Uh, so it's really sad I mean their hopes were so high and and a lot of not I mean not just not just us teaching journalism but there were a lot of American pastors who were going and uh, and being very useful I and mean, it's, it's just become really hard right now so uh, you know I, I, I pray that the Chinese church will survive uh, and you know at some point um, you know there'll be someone else and and, they'll, and, and freedom will will um, you know, let freedom ring again. But um, yeah, really, really sad what's happened there. So, so the history of China it was always was always basically the the official story. And if you didn't, if you don't have the official story, you are if if you have the official story and you don't have other things, you are likely to have at some point a very bloody revolution. Um, the United States, you know, the revolution was was hard in some ways, but only about four thousand people died in it. Uh, the population overall was much smaller, but still, you know, there, there was a certain amount of viciousness at times on both sides, but uh, certainly the outcome on it was very odd in the whole history of revolutions in the world. You know, people have called it in some ways a conservative revolution, uh, and you, you did not have the, uh, the terror uh, that you had in Paris and, and uh, other stuff in 1789. So, you know, there is there a certain, I see in history a certain amount of American exceptionalism. This has been a really unusual country. And I hope will remain so. So, other questions or comments? Um, let me let me then take this opportunity to have a sip. <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> and um, <coughs> yeah, I can just tell a little bit about uh, you know keeping this up here. In, in a sense, this is. Um, this in a way is also my experience with god's mercy um, yeah I mean I grew up in a and i and I wasn't planning to do this but i was uh I was asked last night if I'd do it and yeah I'm, it's not about me it's about God um yeah I grew up in a Jewish household uh what's um what's common uh, in America now bar mitzvah thirteen atheists of fourteen uh and that was what happened to me i started when I was fourteen um i I read uh I read some Sigmund Freud, The Future of an Illusion, sure. and thought, aha, uh-huh. believing God is something for children. I am now 14, I am all grown up, don't need this. Uh, I read H.G. Wells' History of the World, which is now, uh, I think it was 1920, it came out. But this, this was, it, it, it's been repeatedly um, re- republished, and so this was, this was something in the, uh, in the early 1960s. And it's a straight, uh, it's a straight evolutionary history of the world, uh, which then leads to, to socialism. And that's the, that's the highest form. Uh, that's the, that's the final product of, of, uh, of social level of, we have physical evolution and we have social evolution. And I just bought that, uh, entirely. And, and so at 14, I decided I was an atheist. Uh, I was growing up in the Boston area. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, cheering, cheering from the Red Sox, which should have, which should have kept me sane. But, but unfortunately, uh, Baseball is wonderful, but it, it, can't, it can't stop all the political urges that develop at times. So I just kept moving to the left. I had uh, uh, high school teachers who uh, urged me on in that way. Um, I, uh, I went to uh, Yale University and uh, kept moving left. Um, you know, there were, there were some good professors uh, there. Uh, as uh, I was mentioning to Dr. Strange last night, uh, you know, the, the papers of Jonathan Edwards were there in the, uh, the Beinecke Rare Book Library, which I never went into, except to look at the Gutenberg Bible. There are five copies of the Gutenberg Bible in the United States, complete copies, and Yale has one of them, as the University of Texas has another one, I should mention, you know, this is the, not a satanic symbol, but the, the University of Texas, <laughs> hook'em, hook'em horns. So yeah, we have a Gutenberg Bible. Uh, no, most students don't read the Bible, but we have a Gutenberg Bible on display. Um, and um, yeah, I never, ah, I see, I see, uh, yes. That, what sign is that? That's the Gators, or no? Florida gators. That's the Florida Gators. No. Yeah, yeah. You know, this 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 room could quickly devolve into. Uh, but I'll, I'll um, anyway. The um, uh, yeah the the um, uh, where were we? We were in besides the Gators and the Longhorns. So what? Oh, oh, Beineke, yeah Yeah. Um, Never, uh, never looked at any of the Jonathan Edwards papers. There, did not take a course to, from, from a couple of good professors on uh, uh, Edmund Morgan on uh, on colonial American history. I was taking you know the latest sociology courses and uh, and so forth, um, and I just kept moving to the uh, moving to the left. Um, I, I once the closest I came to the Beinecke Library was for five days. I sat with my back against the wall. Of the, the Bonnicki Library because I was in a five-day hunger strike to protest capitalist oppression and so forth. Uh, and so I sat outside it with my back leaning against the surrounding wall, but didn't go in and didn't read any stuff. So yeah, I just kept uh, moving further and further to the left, uh, became a Marxist, uh, was involved in various anti-war activities during in 1970, uh, graduated in 1971. Uh, day after graduation, started bicycling across the country, which I wanted to do, and bicycled from Boston to Oregon, worked on a small newspaper there, um, and uh, quit after six months very stupidly to – the publisher was actually a nice guy, but I saw him as a as a nasty capitalist. Uh, so uh, left, and uh, later in 1972, I joined the Communist Party USA uh, in Oregon. And as you might imagine, there were not a whole lot of Communist Party members in Oregon. Uh, uh, most of the uh, of the dozen people or so in Portland were uh, you know were, were young college graduates like myself. There was one honest to goodness proletariat proletarian among us and, and he was known i don 't remember his name, but he was known as the man who fixes cars because he could do that, and none of them, none of the rest of us could um, so it was kind of an odd an odd little group um, eventually i won 't go through the whole story, but uh, eventually uh, uh, my, I, I met Gus Hall, who was the chairman of the Communist Party and the candidate for president. I met Jarvis Tyn, who was the vice presidential candidate. They all suggested, hey, you know, you have this educational pedigree, uh, you, you can write. Uh, why don't you go to Moscow and, and become a foreign correspondent? And you'll have, you'll have in with our various uh, uh, Soviet big brothers, and you'll be able to write stories and, and make a name for yourself and become influential in that way. All of which sounded like a good idea to me. Um, and I took a Soviet freighter across the Pacific, uh, took the Trans-Siberian Railroad to Moscow, uh, and uh, yeah, was, was, very, was very happy parroting uh, various Communist Party slogans. Um, various stops in Siberia, people would try to, wanted to pass me notes because they were stuck there and couldn't communicate, and uh, just wanting to maybe let family members or others know they were still alive, and I just threw that stuff away. Um, so, pretty nasty, and something happened in Moscow, I don't know what. I mean, I was there for a week waiting to be contacted, I would sort of set this up, I had visited the Soviet embassy in Tokyo when I was there, and, and there were supposed to be communications and messages and things like that, and, you know, either some message went awry or or they, the people in Moscow decided, this is crazy, he must be a CIA plant or something, or something happened, but anyway, no one contacted me. And eventually, I had to leave and go away disappointed and spent uh, spent a couple of months sort of bumming around through uh, through europe uh, stopped at the uh, at the Communist Party headquarters in Rome, and was able to identify all the pictures of Italian communist leaders on the wall, which certified for them that I was for real, uh, yeah. and so forth and so on anyway, came back to the United States, uh, worked in the Boston Globe for a while as a as a communist um, they didn 't actually know I was a member of the party, but I was writing stories about uh, you know oppression oppression stories about the oppression of uh, Portuguese immigrants who were working in the textile industries in Fall River and New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, oppression of small farmers in western Massachusetts uh, everything had an ideological tinge to it, and you know I was a decent enough writer, so it just went in and was published and very little had very little editing um, went to the and then you know, I, I decided I didn't really want to want to stay as a journalist. I might as well uh, be, uh, be interested to become a professor. And so I went to the University of Michigan and they gave me a nice scholarship I was able to go. And um, there was a Marxist professor there in particular who I wanted to study with. Um, and all that came to a crashing end on November 1st, 1973, when for some reason, um, you know, I sat down in my room. I, I, was, I had a room in a sort of rooming house off campus and sat down at three o'clock in a in a red chair, and started uh, reading a uh, a pamphlet by Vladimir Lenin, which I'd read before, called "Socialism and Religion," where he just says, stipulates that atheism is the basis for communism, and anyone who's an atheist should be a communist, and if you're a communist and you're not an atheist, there's something wrong with you. And that didn't come as a shock to me. I knew that. I was pretty happy, actually, that situation the. The, the heads of the Michigan Communist Party had visited me several weeks ago. I had my, I had my little red Communist Party card, um, and um, yeah, something happened. I started having all these weird thoughts. What if there was a God? Uh, what if God really exists? Um, and so the, these were these were quasi-theological thoughts for a while, and then they turned into quasi-cultural or sociological thoughts. I started thinking, well, wait a minute what really am I doing here? Um, You know, my grandparents early in the 20th century left Russia. They fled from the Tsar and from the Tsar's army. Uh, You know, now there's a new Tsar in town, you know, Leonid Brezhnev at that time. Mm. Why, why am I, why am I really having faith in him and the Communist Party? Uh, Why am I, I never actually, I never actually scrawled out what was a popular thing at the time, America, with, with America spelled with, with three Ks, you know, Ku Klux Klan America. I never scrawled it out, but basically that was what I was thinking. You know, America is just a, a racist place, an imperialist place. We do damage to people all over the place. And I started thinking, well, what do I, what do I, is this really true? What do I know about this? What do, what do I, what's accurate here? Uh, why, have I, why have I just made these assumptions? Know, starting in high school and proceeding through college and always going further to the left so so first there was a theology then there was uh, I guess a sociology and uh, and I sat in that chair oddly enough for eight hours from 3 p.m until 11 p.m uh, you know I wasn't I wasn't uh, doing any drugs uh, I wasn't drunk I wasn't I, w- I wasn't I don't know I just just sat there and every hour I had a little alarm clock and I was looking over and saying wait a minute I'm still here uh, what is going on? Why are these thoughts just, just popping into my head? Uh, I mean, I had a sense of, uh, you know, basically uh, being in dark rooms and, and then there was light somewhere uh, in one of those rooms. And what is that room? Is this God? So yeah, I, I did not come out of that a, a, I, I certainly did not come out of that a Christian. I thought Christians were stupid people who worship Christmas trees. I grew <laughs> up with a lot of prejudices like that. Uh, so I certainly did not become a Christian. Um, I, I believed in a God of some kind, but what God I didn't know. Uh, but what I did know is I was no longer communist, because I, I agreed with Lenin. Communism based on atheism. And I was no longer an atheist. So, oh, I guess I'm no longer communist. It was really, you know, basically a little a little of that. And I thought, you know, I've made a big mistake here. And this just isn't. Or, yeah, I, I don't think this is true. I certainly don't think that... I should believe that it is true, you know. Maybe, possibly, it still is, but I've I have jumped into this without really investigating, without doing due diligence, as a journalist. Uh, 11 p.m. I um, um, got up and started wandering around. This was November. It was cold in Ann Arbor. I started wandering around, wandering around all over the U.T. the, UT, the U of M campus, um, and just uh, spent two hours just walking around in the cold, uh, just thinking, "Wow, this is really." This is really wrong, or at least stupid. Uh, why am I having these thoughts? But boy, I guess I guess uh, I guess I'm no longer communist. And quickly told the, or my local party leader, who was a law school student, uh, I'm, "I'm out. I just don't believe this anymore." Um, and he just, uh, well, this is sort of this is kind of a petty bourgeois intellectual, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you know, I spent the next I spent the next three weeks just really reading about this, reading some books by, by Christians who have been communists, reading a wonderful book by uh, Whitaker Chambers called Witness, which if you haven't read that, it's about 900 pages long. Read the first 90 pages, are really terrific. Then the rest sort of gets bogged down. He was in a, very, a court battle against a communist uh, uh, spy named Alger Hiss in the late 1940s, It gets bogged down in that. But the first 90 pages are just wonderful, uh, and you should read it if you haven't. And I read stuff like that. Um, but after three weeks of reading that, I realized, yeah, yeah, I, I've, this, I've just been wrong in all this. Uh, but still, this was now now Thanksgiving time, and this was my first semester in graduate school, and I realized I had to write some papers. Uh, so I spent the next three weeks just just really writing papers and all the courses and, and you know, doing doing decently. Um, and after a while, that faded a little bit. I mean, it was there, and so I was no longer a communist, but what was I? I wasn't quite sure. And here I think, I mean the original thing that happened to me is was just striking god's mercy striking example of god's mercy but then the later things that happened were also interesting I'll give you just I'll give you two two quick examples in 1974 uh, <coughs> number one to get a phd some of you know much to your chagrin at times you have to have a really good reading knowledge of a foreign language i mean if you're kind of if you if you uh, you know bible scholar i mean you need you need you know hebrew and greek but you know, there it could be any language, and so my language was Russian. I had, I had studied it to be able to speak to my Soviet big brothers. I kept reading it. I could read sort of hard, slowly. I could read Providence, Vestia, and so forth, those, those Communist Party newspapers. And so I just kept, kept reading Russian. And one night in my room, um, I just uh, wanted some reading practice in Russian, and I foraged through my bookcase, and I found a little volume, uh, which was the New Testament in Russian. That I had been given in Oregon, uh, I won't go through the whole story of how, but uh, I just started picking up. I said, "Oh, this is." I haven't read. The, oh, I'll read this for reading practice, and uh, you know, starting with uh, with Matthew, um, I may be the the only person or rare person who was actually who actually loved the begats, because I could go through a whole chapter very quickly. Begat, begat, begat. That I knew. I knew enough. Otherwise, I had a was very slow, and I, I had a dictionary and how to look up things, but slowly, I was just I was just astounded. By the time I got to the Sermon on the Mount in chapters five and six, I was thinking, "Wow, this is really something spectacular. This doesn't seem like like man's work. This seems like God's work." Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't know the the vocabulary of inspired and things like that, but that's essentially how I was thinking. And it was so different from from communism or anything I'd grown up with in terms of uh, you know. Uh, Communists basically want to want to foster anger. If, if you're looking in a revolutionary situation or trying to make a revolutionary situation, whereas this one, here's Jesus saying you know turn the other cheek, and also this just seemed very striking to me. So I just kept uh, plowing slowly through it, and so that made it that had a big impact on me. Um, and then in fall of that year, I was assigned. Again, this wasn't a choice on my part. I was assigned. I mean, the professors. Assigned me to teach a course in early American literature, because none of them wanted to do that. I mean, the regular professors—they wanted to teach Polynesian literature, or this, or this, or this, or this. Or this but you know, early American literature—what's that? Well, it's a lot of Puritan sermons. Mm-hmm. And so I had to—I'd never taken a course, and you know, there, again, Edmund Morgan was at Yale. I should have studied with him. I didn't. i never studied that, so I had to do a crash course in the summer, and then in the fall, basically, of trying to keep one step ahead of students and read lots of Puritan sermons. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful I mean some of you have probably read a lot of this but there's a wonderful little paperback edited by Perry Miller just called the American Puritans that I just read through like crazy and underlined and and assigned that as reading and so forth uh, and that had a big impact on I me mean, because yeah I could clearly see that that uh, you know I don't know if this is true but these are not stupid people basically they were working things out very logically they're thinking this stuff through they're thinking through the implications of it so. There were a lot of little detours along the way. In 1975, I started reading some um, sort of uh, Christian existentialist, uh, uh, Gabriel and Marcel, and others, and uh, and that delayed this whole process. But uh, but finally, in 1976, uh, uh, moved to. And I, and I should mention also that Susan uh, came from a. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know why this is getting me really emotional, but. <coughs> Susan came from a United Methodist, a very liberal United Methodist church, kind of Hillary Clinton religion essentially. Um, so she in a way had as far to go as I did, um, but uh, God was working on her too. Um, and, um, you know, we got married. We moved to San Diego where I had a job teaching at San Diego State. Uh, and uh, we lived in La Mesa, which is just east of San Diego. and. Uh, I looked in the Yellow Pages, the churches. I figured, oh, I should find out whether anyone still believes this stuff that I had read from the Puritans. And I didn't really know anything about denominations, but I knew the Christians baptized, and there were lots of Baptist churches. And I thought, oh, I'm no longer a Marxist. I guess I'm a little bit conservative. So I went to a conservative Baptist church, which happened to be just about four blocks away from our apartment. And the uh, the pastor, um, uh, Pastor Berger, John Berger, just had the same sermon every week. You must be born again, Uh, which uh, yeah was was what I needed to hear, Um, and Susan needed to hear that. And um, after a couple of months, an elderly deacon of visitation named Earl Atnip came over to uh, our apartment, and uh, he and I sat out in the in the uh, uh, in the sun. So this was this was three years. This was November in California. It was warm. Southern California, this is three years after my original cold uh, change, and he asked, it was interesting, he, he didn't do any intellectual razzmatazz or something like that. He was a very plain spoken man. He said, uh, as best I recall, uh, uh, you believe this stuff, don't you? That was his evangelistic appeal. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I said, yeah, I guess I do. Uh, reluctantly. I mean, I knew what this sort of meant academically and so forth, even then, let alone now. And he said, well, then you better sign up, uh, which <laughs> meant being baptized. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, I was and, and Susan also wanted to be, so, yeah, I think the following Sunday or the Sunday after. Um, and um, th- so there we were, and, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right now, but uh, the next episode. Uh, I, I think I, I'll go through uh, uh, some some recent stuff, but then I can I can just explain how I became reformed, which which actually happened originally in Indiana, um, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about about that. Um, but I mean, first I'll I'll go through some slides and talk a little bit about some some recent stuff, and uh, and then you know plenty of time for questions and comments and things like that, and. Uh, and then if there's, if there's time, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about that. Um, it is 3.30. It is again, thank you for your patience. I am, I am very appreciative that uh, they all came back for a second time. But the real question <laughs> is, three strikes, you're out. I mean, who will come back again? But I uh, hope to see you all in half an hour.